Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. And tonight the show comes, for, at least for me, from Antibes in France. Now it's been another tough day for investors with stocks down again on fears about rising interest rates. And that's exactly what the Reserve Bank is trying to do. It wants to scare us out of excessive spending to hose down the fires pumping up inflation. Now, if the RBA gets its interest rate rising policy right, inflation will start falling, but it might take a few months and market sentiment will then turn around. This is a sell-off and it is, in a sense, very excessive. And there are great buying opportunities for the long-term money maker. But it takes guts to make money out of stocks. So if you buy quality businesses, and you have time on your side, you will one day remember these scary times fondly. During the most worrying time of my investing life, the global financial crisis, I bought Macquarie at $25 before it fell to $18 for a short time. Yep, and I was worried. But now it's a $180 stock. And that's probably the key lesson. Quality businesses bought and the market is scared can sometimes come back to be great investments over time. So buy quality when the market goes crazy mad. It's not a bad investment strategy. So on, on to tonight's show. And my colleague, Paul Rick, Rickard, caught up with Ausbill's head of equities, Paul Zaratus, on how he's investing with interest rates rising. And he gives us his take on the lithium stocks, which have been bashed up recently. Then Paul and I look at the stocks that benefit from rising interest rates. Then Marcus Bogdan, who selects the stocks for the Switzerland Dividend Growth Fund, which is a listed fund, looks at how long inflation um, pesters us investors for. And he also looks at, uh, looks at the outlook for banks. Now, this was done before the interest rate rise, which has hurt the banks, but I think his, his underlying analysis will still hold firm. Finally, PropTrack's Paul Ryan looks at the falling home price market right now, and he says there's a two-speed home price market out there, one for the capital cities and the other for the regions. That's the show. Let's kick off now with Paul Zaratus. Joining me now is Paul Zaratus, the uh, Executive Chairman and Chief Investment Officer with Ausbill. Paul, thanks for uh, joining us. My pleasure. Now, we saw the Reserve Bank uh, increase interest rates on Tuesday by half percent. That was at the high end of the market and uh, probably signals some further, more aggressive uh, positioning on interest rates going forward. Uh, has that changed the way that you're looking at the Australian equity market? Not overly, um, but certainly the, the extent of the up, the upgrade, I guess, in the sense of the interest rate increase did start did startle the market. Um, it really wasn't too much of a surprise from our perspective. Uh, and also, if you look at the forward estimates of what the market was expecting, there was a view that interest rates will definitely be increasing for the balance of this year to a level of around 1.75 to 2.25. This year in the range that I have seen. Uh, so therefore, the, the half percent rise was probably a little surprising but understandable. Um, but in the whole scheme of things, it's not too different to what we have been thinking for some time. Now, in the last couple of days, the market suddenly realised that uh, if we see uh, a very rapid increase of interest rates and potentially to the RBA getting too far and uh, that banks potentially might be uh, have an issue around uh, borrowers with bad debts and uh, we've seen a, more than a 10% sell-off in the four major banking stocks, Firstly, do you think that's justified? And secondly, do you think there's value starting to emerge in uh, any of the banking stocks there? 
the market was looking was was definitely buying the banks prior to this 50 point rate increase because we did see you know, the banks actually outperform relative to the market for some time and the reason for that outperformance uh, was really the the interest rate leverage that uh, the banks were likely to enjoy through expansion of net interest margins. Um, but as soon as we got that 50 point increase, the market swung quite aggressively the other way and starting to be concerned about what does it mean in the sense of the of the pace and the rate of increases and will that have a dampening, uh, a, a dampening impact on the economy and also uh, raise the, uh, the likelihood um, of, uh, of, of a slowdown even greater than what the market's anticipating and also leading into uh, a rise in bound and doubtful debts. Uh, our view is that um, you know clearly uh, with the rate increase, I think the RBA is sending a signal that they don't want inflation to get out of hand. Uh, so by being aggressive up front, uh, it perhaps does limit the likelihood of rate increases further down the track. So net, we think that is positive. Uh, as far as the banks are concerned, we still think the banks are um, will be the beneficiaries of an expansion of net interest margins uh, as rates do go up. But there is some concern, and I think that is right that we will see some softness in activity uh, given that rate increases are occurring. Uh, but, but we're not expecting overall that bad debts will actually spiral um, anywhere near they have been in the past for a number of different reasons. Uh, we think that the consumer is pretty well positioned. Uh, we do know the consumer as far as uh, forward uh, payments concerned are well and truly ahead of the curve as far as that is concerned with their uh, repayments. Uh, but the other thing is that we do have you know, quite full employment as well. And when you do analyse the concern about um, the outlook um, for banks about provisioning or, or bound out for debts or debts increasing, it really is from the corporate level uh, and also from commercial real estate. And we're not seeing any signs of that at all in the sense that uh, the leverage is not there both in both those sectors. So um, we're not overly concerned, but the market has definitely adjusted quite aggressively rather quickly. And how so do you as well, there is some opportunity now presenting. And how do you respond when you see these very sudden sort of corrections and almost momentum takes over and uh, sort of reason almost rationality goes out the door? How do you as a, as a, as a significant manager of funds sort of adjust to that? Yeah, look, it's incredible how it can change rather quickly. Uh, and we have seen, you know, international investors supposedly come in and short the, uh, the banks. And they have done that in the past. And, and in the past, it's always created an opportunity. You know, we are, we are assessing it all clearly. We think there could be some ongoing negative momentum just in the short term, but quick, but, but as you quickly, uh, as you correctly pointed out, uh, the adjustment has been rather quick. Uh, so there is some opportunities, I think, uh, presenting themselves right now in the banking sector. And of the, uh, the four majors, I mean, Westpac's probably copped it the most. Uh, do you have a sort of preference as to uh, which of the four sort of takes your fancy around these levels? Yeah, look, they're all much of a muchness, but, but clearly there is some valuation differences and there's and rightfully reasons why. Um, the most expensive, and it has been the most expensive for a long term, um, for the long term has been CBA because that's the best quality bank it's perceived in the marketplace. And we share that view. Uh, we think National Bank also is looking interesting to us. I mean, that's our most preferred bank in the, in the major four, uh, but the other two have actually come back uh, quite aggressively. So, so there is some general um, opportunities there. But if we had to rank them, we would definitely put um, National Bank number one um, and also uh, CBA as second. Let's move on to another sector that's also had a bit of a, a hard time of late, and that's the lithium sector. We've seen so much hype about um, the demand for lithium as a result of the demand for um, you know, electric vehicles. And I don't know how many sort of graphs I've seen that suddenly that there's this uh, huge demand gap that can't be met by the supply 
And all of a sudden, a couple of the brokers turn around and say, well, we think the, the market could be imbalanced on the supply side by as early as 2024. And there may be even an oversupply in 2025. So look, how do you sort of take that information in and, and what do you think is sort of, uh, uh, is there any value starting to emerge in what has been a really, really hot sector? You're right, that has been a very hot sector, and I think for the right reasons. Um, we have seen, you know, well and truly very strong demand uh, for electric vehicles and also uh, demand for lithium as a consequence of that. Uh, we do believe this is a super trend. This is going to continue for many years yet to come. Uh, and we do, do believe that uh, the demand profile is going to be quite robust. Uh, right now, the market has been concerned about some softness in demand, uh, which was, and, and they were pointing to China as an area where there was going to be some softness. But all the indications we are seeing right now is, is, is in fact the opposite. Um, BYD, which is the largest uh, EV manufacturer in, in China, for instance, had a stronger, strongest month uh, in May ever. Um, and the outlook for the next two months for them is actually quite strong. The other area of concern from a demand profile is coming out of the rest of the world, where there is the view that if, uh, if, if we do come into, and we are likely to come into some softness globally as far as growth is concerned, there'll be some weakness um, in demand uh, for vehicles overall, which we share, but we don't think that weakness will be across EVs. We think they're in structural up uptrend. So we think from a demand profile perspective, it's still very strong and still likely to surprise over the medium term. So when you look at then the, um, this, the uh, supply, uh, we definitely have seen lithium price move up. That does entice some additional supply to come on stream. And quite frankly, we need that additional supply in order to meet that demand going forward. But we don't think it is an issue uh, in the short to medium term. Uh, we think that some of the uh, supply concerns has been overstated. And in fact, that the supply coming out of China, uh, which is perceived to be coming on in the next 12, 18 months, is going to be very, very difficult to actually bring on stream in our view. Now, the lithium stocks, by at least by market cap, is sort of in the small bottom end. And, uh, you know, do you, do you have a, when you look at that sort of sector and you, you talked about the, uh, what you see is that long-term fundamentals supporting those sort of companies. How, how do you invest given that some liquidity in some of these stocks isn't, uh, isn't particularly strong? Yeah, I mean, the, they have moved up and there is a, a bit of additional liquidity, but you're right, in, in total market capitalisation terms, they're still relatively small, um, but there is some good quality names that you can invest in um, and which we do have exposure to. Uh, Allchem is definitely one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, it is It has consolidated with that or actually bought out Galaxy uh, previously or merged just uh, uh, last year. So in size, it's become a bit more meaningful. Uh, but also IGO um, is also another way of actually playing the lithium uh, exposure. And uh, that is reasonably liquid and reasonably large cap uh, and better quality as well. So, so that's how we choose to play it um, within the larger cap universe. Uh, but our smaller caps do have a bit more flexibility and they do go down the market capitalization curve. And, and finally, Paul, in this environment of, uh, of higher interest rates, uh, is there another sector or industry that you think that, um, you know, have you, you've taken a slightly uh, an overweight position in uh, to reflect that the, the changing sort of um, economic circumstances? I think we may have lost. Look, I think that um, one of the sectors which should benefit from a rising interest rate environment, um, which has been a sector which has suffered quite dramatically over the years, um, is, is the general insurance sector. Uh, you know, one of the, the reasons for that is that uh, clearly the general insurance sector need to invest a uh, short tail uh, to match their liabilities. Mm -hmm. So as a consequence of that, um, you know, they've been investing in, in short term money market instruments. But as rates do go up, um, you know, they're going to enjoy the benefits of that from their income book, uh, which will translate into a better insurance margin. 
So we think there's some earnings upside over the next little while um, with rates moving up. So it's a sector that we do actually favour as a consequence of that. And are you worried about sort of uh, one of the other contra arguments which has been around that, uh, you know, climate change leading to sort of more sort of, you know, increased natural perils risk and, uh, you know, it could be really tough for these insurance companies going forward uh, simply because of the number of storms and cyclones and, and floods and yeah. so forth? Look, I think that is a concern, uh, clearly. Um, but the thing is, the insurance sector is a, uh, insurance is a risk taker in the sense that they do price risk accordingly. You know, they do forecast what they think going forward. They do actually take out reinsurance in order to protect their, uh, their book against that. Uh, but also they price it accordingly as well. And what we have seen over, over the past two or three years in particular has been the top line growth has been growing quite dramatically um, for the insurance sector. Um, in order to actually compensate or be compensated for that higher level of risk. So while they can't, while it's not nearly, never perfectly matched, I think they are doing a reasonably credible job uh, by taking out reinsurance uh, in order to protect their overall exposure. But they're also raising uh, premium rates, which we all have to pay for, yeah. unfortunately. All right, well, look, we might leave it there. Uh, Paul Zarates, the Executive Chairman and uh, Chief Investment Officer for Osbill. Thanks for joining us on Switzer. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Hello and welcome to Switzer TV. I'm Peter Switzer. And with the RBA shocking everybody with a 0.5% increase in interest rates, the question is, with interest rates on the rise, which stocks should do well? Let's kick off, Paul. Um, what do you think? Well, let's start with the banks, Peter, because they're the obvious ones, but they're also the question mark ones because an interest rate increase is good for banks in the short term. That is, uh, they're able to improve their net interest margin. And that's because they have a large proportion of what we call zero rate or almost close to zero rate deposits that actually don't get repriced when interest rates move up. So while they change the interest rate higher on their loans, they don't change the interest rate on some of these deposits. And so the margin actually increases. So that's good for the bank's profitability in the short term and the impact is almost immediate. But the problem for banks longer term is that if the interest rate increases are you know, very quick and rapid, and they actually cause the economy to slow, so much that uh, borrowers get into problems with their mortgages and businesses struggle, it actually could actually lead to an increase in bad debts, and that's bad for banks in the long term. So I think we've seen one of the reasons we saw a bit of a sell-off in banks the other day is actually a fear that maybe uh, this interest rate increase is too much, and it might actually, actually trigger some bad debts for the banks down the track. Yeah, the interesting thing is that if a stitch in time saves nine, it actually might be good for the bank's bottom line, but we don't know at this point in time. Well, now let's look at another group of companies, insurance companies. Yeah, typically, Peter, insurance companies should do well from higher interest rates. And that's because a fair part of their profit or a major component of their profit comes from their investment of surplus funds. And they have not only capital to invest, but they have a lot of reserves from policyholders and also claims reserves. So typically, insurance companies... Uh, have quite a bit invested uh, in bonds and other interest-bearing deposits. And so if interest rates go up, they actually, their investment income increases, so does their profit, and that's good in the long term. Now, the ones that perhaps come to mind are companies like uh, QBE, IAG, Suncorp, and Medibank Private. Now, in the case of a couple of them, and particularly, let's talk about um, IAG and Suncorp, the sort of counter-argument to the interest rate increase, of course, is what we're seeing uh, yeah, some would say driven by climate change, but certainly a concern about natural perils risk. In other words, 
the number of sort of natural disasters, floods, cyclones, uh, bushfires is increasing, and it's getting to be pretty hard to be an insurer. Now, I'll just look at those four stocks in detail. Um, you can see on the right-hand side, or the second column there is the target price. That's from, from the major brokers, the current AS, ASX price, and also the implied upside or downside. So on paper, at least, uh, the brokers like to look at the stocks. They think there's sort of more upside over the next 12 months. But if you actually look at the, 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 the graphs for a couple, let's start with IAG. It's not really looking too healthy, Peter. It's been trending down most of the last 12 months. And maybe this, this is a company, although on paper, it should be a winner from higher interest rates. Uh, there's actually too much concern about what's going on in the natural environment with, uh, you know, as I said, this sort of perils risk. Uh, a second mm. one is QBE. It's done a little bit better uh, and benefited particularly in March and April. And I think that might be, it's a more diversified book. It's more internationally focused. And maybe that's a better book to uh, look at to uh, benefit from uh, higher interest rates. One a company mm. we haven't mentioned, we talked about is Medibank Private. That's health insurance. So it doesn't have to worry about things like uh, natural claims risk. And that should be an automatic winner uh, from higher interest rates. Okay, let's go to another group of uh, beneficiaries of higher interest rates. Yeah, I want to talk about two other companies because sometimes these are actually the biggest beneficiaries and they, uh, they're not necessarily categorised in the sector. But let's talk about two in particular of, of the major companies. The first one is uh, Challenger, which of course is a, uh, a company that uh, sells annuities or, or, or it's a life insurance company that generates most of its business out of the sales of annuities. Now, as an insurer... It has quite a lot of investable funds and the policyholder reserves. So it automatically wins uh, because its investment pool increases and is able to invest at higher rates when interest rates go up. But longer term, um, annuities, are, and they're largely purchased by self-funded retirees, that very much depends on just how attractive the annuity is. And because backing annuities are fundamentally things like bonds and um, other very safe investments, if the interest rates on those increase, then Challenges able to make the annuities more attractive. So in the medium term, it should actually see increased sales of annuities because they'll become more attractive um, to self-funded retirees. And you yep. can, the, the second group or the second company I want to talk about is ComputerShare, which uh, is actually in the information technology sector, Peter, and is actually the best performing tech company this last 12 months. Yep. It really has significant leverage to rising interest rates because uh, it manages a lot of money on behalf of, uh, of corporate and uh, clients and issuers and effectively takes a margin uh, on that cash. Now, when cash rates are zero, you know, there's nothing to invest. But when cash rates go up, uh, it can actually invest at a better rate and not have to pay its clients too much. And so it's been one of the better performing stocks uh, in, in, the, in the tech sector this year. Let's look at what the brokers have to say. Uh, computer share. Uh, the market sees about 10% upside. It's done pretty well as I come to the chart at the moment. Challenger, the, the broker sees as pretty fully priced. This is the graph for uh, computer share, which is, uh, you know, the last 12 months, it's a lot higher than it was where it started. Come off a little bit the last two months, but maybe it got a bit ahead of itself. And finally, the graph for Challenger, which is, I think you'd have to admit, Peter, uh, has been trending up pretty steadily. And uh, that's not only a function of interest rates, but I think that uh, there's a bit more confidence in the market that has got the business mix right and actually making the right decisions to take the company forward. So there's the probably two companies I'd look out for as uh, companies like ComputerShare uh, and Challenger, but also don't forget about some of the insurance companies. So in conclusion, Paul? 
Well, I'd look at certainly stocks like ComputerShare and, uh, and Challenger as being winners. So as are some of the insurance companies. I guess one thing we didn't point out at the beginning, Peter, is that there are more losers than winners from higher interest rates. And that's why the market's taken a bit of a turn. But anyhow, there are companies that can benefit. Uh, and these are some of the major stocks that will participate as interest rates go higher. Yeah, really good analysis. Thanks for joining us on Switzer TV. The big debate in markets is whether inflation is transitory or it's here to stay and the central banks are going to have to work a lot harder to get it under control. Joining me now to discuss that and also to look at, uh, at the banks and also companies like Amcor is Marcus Bogdan from Blackmore Capital and also the manager of the Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. Marcus, thanks for joining us on Switzer. Uh, I might just start by talking to you about where you stand on the inflation debate. We've got sort of the two schools of thought out there at the moment. One is it's, uh, I guess, from the bulls that it's, that it's transitory and we'll get through all the supply side shocks and the central banks will get this under control. Uh, the other side saying, well, the central banks have been very slow to react. Uh, they're behind the ball game. This is going to be a lot harder. It's more structural. Uh, and the markets uh, are right to remain on edge. Where did, what's your sort of position on that at the moment? Uh, good morning, Paul. Well, I think um, the supply chain issue, uh, the evidence of what we're seeing on supply chains is that those disruptions have been continuous uh, and they've been problematic. So I do think that there are absolutely uh, elements there that are structural in terms of um, higher inflation pulses, uh, particularly uh, particularly around labour and la labour shortages, uh, and elements there of also um, shortening supply chains and issues around supply chains suggest that you know we we are in a period of elevated inflation going going forward. Uh, and particularly if you look at, you know, the long tail impact of potentially of food inflation, as well as higher energy prices. So those elements tend to suggest uh, that the higher rates that we're, we're seeing could actually um, uh, um, become even more problematic in the next couple, couple of months. But then obviously the use of monetary policy and, and reduce uh, and, and higher interest rates uh, could moderate some of the demand that we're seeing, particularly on, on the good, good side. So the net uh, summary of all of that is that I do think we're in a period of extended elevated inflation. Uh, it, at some point, it will moderate from these higher levels. Uh, but I don't think in the foreseeable future that it will go back to the sorts of levels that we were accustomed to over the last decade. And do you think the uh, sort of the recession argument that if the central banks play this too hard, they might just choke off growth? Are you, are you worried about uh, the suggestion that uh, perhaps the US and maybe Australia might, uh, is, if growth slows too much, we might head towards a recession? It's a very uh, tough balance that the central banks uh, have to have to manage now as inflation has become problematic at these elevated levels. Uh, there's no doubt that I think that we're uh, at the mature end of the economic and the and the earning cycle uh, in both the US and the Australian and the Australian 
economies. Um, but the evidence to date is that, you know, GDP, and we saw that yesterday in, in Australia, um, we're still printing good numbers here, despite the rise of Omicron and the disruptions that had, the floods that we saw uh, uh, earlier. So there is a robustness, particularly in the Australian economy, and you're also seeing that in, uh, in just the tight labour markets in the US. But I do think the pathway forward is for further moderation of economic growth and further moderation of, of earnings growth as well. Let's look at uh, how you're sort of translating that to sort of some views on some companies and how you're investing, particularly on behalf of the Switzer Dividend Growth, growth Fund. First stock I want to talk about is Amcor, which has uh, been doing really well in the market. So what's your, uh, what's your position in Amcor and what's your view in terms of uh, how they're handling the challenges uh, in this uh, you know, heightened uh, inflation environment? So, so we hold a, um, a, a substantial position in Amcor in the portfo portfolio. Uh, and Amcor, there's um, two parts of that business, is, is flexible plastics and rigid plastics. It is primarily a Northern Hemisphere business, so it definitely faces into the US and European econ economies. Uh, and their results uh, have been very encouraging over the last year. Uh, they've constantly upgraded their earnings guidance. Last week, they indicated that they are moving their guidance to the upper end of their range uh, and expecting to see for, for 2022 um, earnings per share growth between 9.5% and 11%. Uh, they are very strong numbers. And one of the reasons that they've been able to perform so strongly is that they have uh, a very good mechanisms of passing through um, higher higher costs, uh, whether it be with through energy and, and plastics or transportation, uh, and their markets they're facing into consumer staples. Ninety five percent of the business relates to consumer staples, uh, and those markets have remained incre incredibly resilient. So we like Amcor. We, we certainly um, uh, are encouraged by the way that they have executed uh, and it continues to be um, uh, a good position in the portfolio. Would you characterise Amcor as, as perhaps sort of like almost like a defensive stock given their exposure to sort of pretty resilient markets in uh, a lot of consumer and consumer staples packaging? Yes, no, we were classified as, as a defensive industrials uh, and we've got a couple of other companies uh, that, uh, that fall under that category in the portfolio, uh, including companies like Brambles and, and Clean Away as well. Uh, there are elements in, in Amcor which were affected by the pandemic. Uh, they've got a very uh, uh, significant proportion of, of, uh, of their earnings relating to healthcare. Uh, in, in terms of um, in, ter in terms of packaging in hospitals and in pharmaceuticals, and now we're starting to see that business also recover as well. But uh, net net, uh, it is a defensive industrial. Okay, let's move on to the banks. We had uh, three of the four majors plus Macquarie report in uh, the early part of May, and I think you've done the rounds. And uh, so, what's your sort of take on the opportunities in the financial sector, particularly in regards to the major banks? Well, the retail banks uh, 
on the whole, uh, enjoying uh, uh, the benefits of uh, strong growth in mortgages, and that was reflected uh, in, in, the la in the last week, week or so, a strong growth in business lending uh, and, and a robust uh, deposit growth as well. So all of those elements uh, uh, have led to uh, sort of, uh, sort of fa favourable earnings results uh, broadly for the banking sector. Uh, they have nav navigated, uh, you know, the, um, uh, the fixed mortgage element quite, quite, quite well so far in terms, of, in terms of their net interest margins. What has been a con continually problematic has been on the expense side, uh, and I don't think that's going to alleviate mm -hmm. in the short term. Uh, but we do think that that has been largely reflected in the, the robustness that you've seen in banking banking shares, uh, and now uh, with you know price earnings ratios of around. Uh, 15 times of an average for the for the retail banks, uh, we see them as fair value at the moment. The standout would be NAB, uh, which is uh, generating uh, results above system, particularly in, in housing and, and business. Uh, and that has been a very good recovery play. And so are you positioned more in NAB and just explain sort of how you're positioning amongst those four and uh, if, as long as you have sure. to cover that, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so we have positions in Commonwealth Bank, which is obviously has had the premium valuation against the other banks, and rightly so, because they have executed uh, incredibly well and, and have enjoyed the, the economies of scale and also the technology benefit that that bank has produced. Uh, NA, NAB, which um, has been a laggard for uh, for you know much of much of, of my, my career but is certainly starting to execute uh, much better uh, and then uh, I think prob probably um, the one with on the on the cheapest valuation is, is Westpac where we, we do see that that is a slow burn but uh, a recovery there and provides a dividend yield of over five percent so positioned across um, CBA NAB and, and Westpac at this point. Okay, so missing from that was ANZ, but let me ask you about Macquarie, if I can as well, because uh, a different sort of bank, an investment bank and a global operator. I mean, um, so mm -hmm. when you're thinking about your portfolio and, and looking at uh, Macquarie, uh, how do you sort of uh, put a lens around Macquarie? Uh, our lens on Macquarie is, is favourable. Um, we do think that uh, they have uh, positioning themselves uh, for this transition towards green infrastructure uh, is particularly significant. Uh, and that was illustrated by the acquisition of the Green Investment Bank in the UK. Uh, and there's no doubt that um, Macquarie will be one of the global leaders uh, in green infrastructure go going, going forward. Uh, on the other side of, of the things that they're also benefit, benefiting from the high volatility in commodities prices and so that they've got a, a commodities energy business, which is, is certainly benefiting uh, from, from what they're seeing in those markets as well. Uh, it is important to point out that, uh, you know, Macquarie is viewed um, as, a, as, a, as a sort of a market player in the market so it is uh it can be quite volatile and it's certainly volatile across may but uh, we do believe that over the medium and long term uh macquarie are positioning themselves for future growth particularly in green infrastructure 
Marcus Bogdan from uh, Blackmore Capital and also uh, the manager of the uh, Switzer Dividend Growth Fund. Thanks for joining us on Switzer. Pleasure. Thank you, Paul. Cheers. Nationally, home prices fell in May, the first fall since the start of the pandemic. Joining me now to discuss what's going on in the property market, and particularly the two-speed market we're seeing between some of the major capital cities and the region, is Paul Ryan, an economist with the REA Group and author of the PropTrack Report. Uh, thanks for joining us, Paul. Well, home prices uh, fell by about 0.1% in May. What do you put that down to? Thanks very much for having me. Um, we've seen housing price growth slow dramatically over the past six months and over 2022 in particular. Um, I think there's been a big difference between people's expectations for interest rates uh, six months ago and now. So May brought about the first interest rate hike by the RBA. And I think that's that's mostly coincidental, but it's all um, correlated with basically people are expecting interest rates to be as high as two percentage points higher at the end of the year. So that crimps borrowing power quite a lot. Um, and we've seen, I think, borrowers be more um, circumspect about how much they're willing to bid. And do you think if the RBA continues to increase interest rates, we're going to see uh, you know, further falls? Is that enough to sort of just make buyers a little more uh, more careful and sellers perhaps just a touch keener? So uh, not necessarily. So, yes, um, interest rates are expected to rise. I think a lot of the weakness that we're seeing in the market at the moment is because people are just unsure exactly how much they're gonna rise later in the year. So while higher interest rates will put downward pressure on housing price growth, and we've already seen that throughout the year so far, I think removing that uncertainty and getting a, a bit more guidance about exactly how high interest rates will go, um, potentially um, will allow things to be a bit more stable going forward. So. Uh, I think it's important to note that we're seeing more of a two-speed market across the country too. We've seen the largest cities, Sydney and Melbourne, we've seen them fall now for a couple of months, um, but we're still seeing smaller capitals, Adelaide and Brisbane and regional areas um, benefit from affordability and, and larger homes, those kind of trends that we've seen since the pandemic. So um, it, it's not a kind of one story across the market, it's all interest rates. It's um, a, definitely a different story across the country. Let's uh, just peer into that sort of two-speed market you talk about. What's the sort of difference, what's going on with Sydney in terms of uh, in May and year to date sort of growth versus perhaps what's happening in, uh, in perhaps some of the cheaper cities like Adelaide and Hobart? Yeah, so Sydney, we saw prices fall 0.24%, um, I believe. Um, and then if we compare that with Adelaide, which is actually kind of the star performer over um, kind of the past few months, um, Adelaide was up 0.6% in the month. Um, and Brisbane was up 26% in the year, Adelaide up 24% in the year. So substantially higher than, than we're seeing. So Melbourne, for instance, is only up 7.5% over the year. So a big divergence there between those capitals. And you can you can see that the, the difference in prices, I mean, Sydney, the median price is up at, um, for a house is now over 1.25 million dollars, mm -hmm. whereas in Brisbane, you can still kind of get something in the 600, 700,000 mark. You can see why um, those smaller capitals still have that appeal. And notwithstanding the huge increase we've seen in places like Hobart, is that sort of uh, looking now like it's about to sort of uh, running out of steam or are we still seeing great growth down in Hobart? 
Definitely. So um, Hobart has grown enormously. It's one of the star performers over the past five years. Um, I think Hobart is up almost 50% since the start of the pandemic. So, so a huge amount of growth there. And, and that market seems to have run out of steam. So we saw last month's falls in Hobart. This month, we saw a flat result. Um, but we're still seeing growth in regional Tasmania. So that um, high demand for people moving south and north continues. And it's kind of just spreading out further. So regional Tasmania, regional Queensland, regional New South Wales, they're big, um, big gains from all of those trends. And when you talk about regional sort of New South Wales and Victoria, is it is it across the board or is it confined to sort of the, uh, you know, uh, the, the on the coast where obviously it might be more attractive for people who want to work and commute, work and sort of tele tele work, I guess, and want the lifestyle. How we how does it play out in terms of the different parts of uh, of those of those states? Yeah, you're exactly right. So um, it, it's definitely been this shift, this tree change, sea change shift, but also it's locations that people can still commute to in a pinch. You can imagine there's a lot of people now who are imagining their mm -hmm. future in an office is commuting one or two days a week. And that really has benefited places like Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, um, Central Coast in New South Wales, um, as well as um, in Tasmania, even so places like Launceston have been performing really well. So um, those are the trends we're seeing. These regional locations that have been kind of formerly just too far away from the city are now kind of coming to the fore. Right. And, and so, Paul, as we, as we look ahead, uh, Reserve Bank uh, increases, um, thinking about that, uh, the change of government, lots of cost of living pressures. Uh, are they all negative factors for, for the market looking ahead? Or do you think the market just has its own, you know, because there's not a lot of new supply coming into the market and we know that... Uh, one of the consequences of, of COVID has been, it's been pretty hard to get materials. So it's taking a long time to build new houses and uh, you know, there are some supply constraints. Do so you think it's a, fairly, it's a fairly balanced market at the moment? So in, in terms of sellers and buyers in the market, I would characterize it as balanced. We're seeing lots of sellers bring properties to market and we're still seeing lots of buyers in the market. Now, obviously rents have grown quite a lot over 2022. Interest rates are now rising, which is putting pressure on homeowners or um, borrowers. Um, and that's adding to that cost of living pressure. So uh, like that seems like it's bad news, but at the same time, um, we've got these other forces. So part of the shifts that we saw in the pandemic are starting to reverse. We've got investors coming back into the market that were formerly absent. We've got immigration coming back um, you know, as borders were closed for almost two years. Uh, so that's gonna lead to kind of a, hopefully a bit of a resurgence in inner city areas, uh, places where both investors and immigrants um, provide a lot of housing demand. We're also, hopefully, we'll see those supply constraints ease later in the year and we'll kind of get to building more homes. And, and I know the, the incoming Labor uh, government has um, made a lot of effort to think about, you know, how can we resolve a lot of these long-term supply pressures, build more homes, um, how can we build more social and affordable housing? And hopefully, uh, over the kind of coming years, uh, we can make houses more affordable rather than just kind of this ongoing kind of cost of living pressures from every angle. Well, I think everyone wants to see housing more affordable. I don't think they want to see their house price drop, but certainly uh, we all have sympathy for those people trying to get into the market and some of the prices, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, are just crazy. So uh, let's hope some of those uh, policies uh, from the new government can have an impact on the market in, in due course. Uh, that's Paul Ryan uh, from the REA Group. Thank you very much for joining us on Switzer. Thank you so much. That was Paul Ryan, an economist with PropTrack, part of the REA Group.
And that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. Next Monday is a public holiday, so we'll see you on Thursday. And if you want more information about the kind of stocks that we like that are selected by other experts that we deal with, go to the Switzer Report, switzerreport.com.au. Once again, see you on Thursday.